0: This is the Adam and History Podcast, and I'm Chris Grayton. This episode is the first of a series of episodes on a special theme, the sound of revolution in modern Egypt. Over the course of these four installments, we'll offer a sonic history of Egypt and its political transformation. We'll listen to shellac phonographic records, city street traffic, home cassette recordings, and public protests. All the way up to 2011 when Egyptians took to Tahrir Square in Cairo and made their voices heard around the world in arguably the most spectacular revolution of the Arab Spring period. But before we get there, we'll need to take things back a century to another revolution in Egypt against the British colonial regime which was the culmination of Egypt's often forgotten experience of World War I. Here's our first guest, Alia Mosallem, a Berlin-based researcher whose work explores Egyptian songs and the stories they tell.
1: My friend and director, Leila Slimane, was commissioned to do a, a play about World War I in Egypt, how it was experienced in Egypt on the occasion of the centenary in, in 2000. 2014 and um and we had no idea i mean what what was it like in you know in a world war 1 in egypt and then we started looking for songs that were recorded during this time and we found out about uh, Mishian the Armenian uh, record producer who was in egypt at the time and how world war 1 was an opportunity for him I think he did the recordings at home, it was a very sort of basic uh, operation, but because a lot of the big recorders at the time, uh, it, like Audion, the international records had to leave, it was an opportunity for him. And so one of the songs we listened to at the time was Naima al Masriya's Ya Aziz Aini, Ana Rawah Baladi. But we couldn't make it out. We couldn't decipher it because the recording was so bad. So we just used it as it was in the play and we used a number of songs. We discovered, say, Darwish's song, Zuruni Kulisana Marra, was also recorded during the period and it was about people who are arrested. We kept it at that, but I was so haunted by the Sizi Zaini that I just it took me like a year of listening to it on and off in order to be able to decipher the lyrics. and I wanted to know what exactly um, it was about. But as I, as I deciphered the song, as, as I did more research, I found so many different versions of it across different archives. So there's this one that was recorded by Naima al between 1914 and 1917 during a time where she was singing an Asyut. Um, and Asyut is a place where a lot of people were recu- recruited for the war. A lot of workers were recruited for the war. And there was in the Foreign Office Archives, a transcribed version of the song that was recorded around 1917, 1918. And I think it was documented uh, as people were being taken to the war on, on trains. This is what they sang. And yet another version in a newspaper in the 30s where someone was recounting hearing troops sing it as they went to, you know, to receive their, their clothes and to be taken to the depots where they would be transported to the war. In British lieutenants' diaries as they were overlooking workers sort of the, digging the railway tracks in Gaza. Uh, and in each of these cases, the refrain would be the same. But the content of the song would change and it would be talking about a particular context or moment. And this for me was amazing that you could use one song as that the song becomes a sort of structure and it's remembered in all these different contexts. And it's symbolic because it was dispersed across the archives just as these workers' experiences were dispersed across the world and across the fronts and across the archives. An archive of memory, a musical archive, newspaper archive, a colonial archive. Their voices were sort of stuck in these different places.
0: Songs from the war period could be heard everywhere in the historical record, in varying forms that brought the experience of an individual singer or group into a collective story that echoed throughout the years following the First World War. And they hinged on the experiences of a group of Egyptian workers, whose voices could only really be accessed in this form. Here's Kyle Anderson, author of a recent book about the Egyptian labor corps, and how the First World War transformed the relationship between the British Empire and Egypt.
2: We have to attune ourselves to sound as historians when we're studying people who didn't leave behind written accounts, because a lot of times this is kind of the only way that we have to get a sense of what they thought and how they felt and how they perceived their surroundings. The Egyptian Labor Corps did not leave behind a lot of written records for us, like letters home or diaries or memoirs that become the source material for so many studies of the First World War in other contexts. Most of the actual records that we have of Egyptian Labor Corps are records of speech acts that are embedded in the writings of British observers, oftentimes transliterated in kind of random ways. I try to use these snippets of Egyptian colloquial Arabic that are preserved in British accounts to give us a sense of what the Egyptian labor corps did kind of when they weren't working. And so this includes chatting with each other a lot. It includes popular religious rituals like Sufi zikr or Ramadan festivals. It includes a lot of songs and theatrical productions that were being put on by the Egyptian laborers as they served abroad.
0: Mundane songs like Ya Zaini, when repurposed by Egyptian laborers in their daily life, became part of a broader soundscape through which we can learn more about their historical experiences. We'll return to the songs in a bit, but first, some context on how upwards of 100,000 Egyptian workers came to labor in the war effort of Great Britain, which had formally occupied Egypt since 1882. Over a century prior, beginning with Mehmed Ali Pasha, who founded a new ruling dynasty in Egypt, the Egyptian state had come to rely on the conscripted labor of Egyptian peasants. They didn't just serve as soldiers but also workers on state-run projects, such as irrigation works, or the construction of the Suez Canal in the 1860s, during which tens of thousands of Egyptian workers died of disease. Meanwhile. The British Empire increasingly ran on manpower from overseas colonies in Asia, Africa, and the Americas. World War I would mark the first time in which Egyptian conscripts were sent abroad en masse to labor in this colonial system.
2: In faraway conflicts in places like India and the Americas, the British found it kind of pragmatic to recruit labor locally. But as time went on and British ideas about race and race science developed throughout the 19th century, there started to be a whole series of kind of theories about how specific races functioned in different military capacities. Now it's specific racial ideas about who are the types of people who are fit, biologically speaking, to do work in tropical zones. And even in Egypt also, I think there is uh, a sense of this racialized associations of military labor when the British import during the Mahdi Wars of the 1880s and the 1890s, they begin to import a number of indigenous Canadians, First Nations peoples, who are seen as being especially adept at navigating ships upstream when when they're going against the streams of rivers. The argument that I'm making is that by the time the First World War breaks out, the British already had developed a very clear sort of racialized set of ideas about who was appropriate for certain kinds of military labor and who wasn't, when they are drawn into the Egyptian labor corps, what's really going on is that Egyptians are starting to be conceived of in similar terms to Indians, Black Africans in the Caribbean, and others that the British have used in these various campaigns. And so we start to see the displacement of that former racialization of Egyptians as Muslims, With a new sense of Egyptians as people of color appropriate for military labor.
0: To staff the new Egyptian labor corps, the British Army looked to rural communities of the Nile Delta in the north and Upper Egypt in the south. And although they offered a paying job, the distinction between recruitment and coercion became murky.
2: They started out by using labor contractors, which had become kind of the dominant mode of recruiting migrant labor for private industry, and also for state purposes in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. But as the war went on, the demand for labor and Egyptian labor to help in the war ultimately exceeded the capacity of these labor contractors. And so the British had to lean more heavily on the Ministry of Interior. Certain officials, uh, local officials known as Almud, Basically, uh, like the headman of each village, they gave them quotas every month in a system known as administrative pressure and would say, okay, you have to furnish so many laborers to the Egyptian labor corps this month. And the omad, the officials, would start by seeing if anybody's interested in the, the wage because it is wage labor. They're offering temporary contracts on a three to six month basis for. I think it's five to six piastres a day, depending on the specific branch of the labor corps that you are involved in. That's a decently good amount of money. Um, I think from what I can tell, the average that a migrant laborer could have made for for working, let's say, in an archaeological dig or on irrigation canals or in a private construction project might have been around one to four piastres a day. So the Egyptian labor corps is offering them five or six, which is a little bit more. Also, part of the deal was that you would get an advance on your salary, give it to your family, and then go abroad, work in Palestine, work in France, work in Gallipoli, wherever they needed you. And eventually you would be collecting this daily wage. Obviously, every laborer interacted with this wage system in a different way. And I think the big point Overarching here is ultimately the wage, even though the wages induced some people to join, it didn't induce enough to fill the quotas. So, at a certain point in time, the Almud have to rely on sheer violence and force and compulsion to bring people into the Egyptian labor corps. People that, you know, they start off by taking whoever's willing to work for the money. And then, if they still have people left over that they need to recruit, they just start grabbing people off the streets. You know, they have cops with them, right? Local guards, the Khufara, who threaten violence if people refuse to to join up. And in many cases, they did refuse. This led to kind of clashes, and ultimately, the police would force the targeted laborers to join the ELC.
0: Attempts to force Egyptians to join the labor corps were met with resistance that took various forms.
2: The most common way, and probably the most instinctual way, is just individual resistance, right? So an OMAD or some of the local policemen come up to you and say, you have to work in the ELC, and the target says, forget you, and starts fighting against this person with whatever they can find around them. So there are examples of kitchen knives and sticks and sometimes guns being used. And then the second main type, besides individual, is family-based, and that's when we start to see uh, kinship groups, including women, wives, sisters, mothers, getting involved in trying to beat back the recruiting officials. Uh, sometimes it's families that live in a single compounds. So there are other kind of buildings nearby that are all mobilizing at once to try to free one of their family members. And then I was also able to find seven different examples of what I called mass resistance. Which incorporated groups that were larger than families at times, up to and including entire village populations. So hundreds of people might show up in a demonstration to try to protest against the forced recruitment of somebody from the village. And in those cases, what the Umad, the village headman, would do is make a call to the biggest town nearby and would ask them to send the police. I think in almost every case the targeted laborer was forced to go despite resistance
0: the experience of working in the labor corps fostered further resistance as rural egyptians learned firsthand what it meant to be part of a colonial power relation in the british military
2: they're being shepherded along the journey from their villages to the fronts in places like france and gallipoli italy iraq palestine they're really being shepherded the whole way by British officials. They move from the village to the local town, the nearest town, and there they're kept in jail and holding cells, sometimes for weeks, you know, maybe even up to a month. And they're waiting for sanitary inspectors, British sanitary inspectors, to come by. The the inspectors are going on these tours through the countryside and they're stopping at the different towns. And when they get to a town, they inspect all the people that have been recruited to join the ELC. And then there's a process where, uh, you know, some people get accepted by the sanitary inspectors and some get rejected and sent home at that point. I think there's a height cutoff. I think it's like five foot six. Um, And then if anybody has any sort of lingering diseases or anything like that, they are also not allowed to continue on. And, you know, and the ironic thing here is that a lot of people didn't want to continue on, right? So sometimes they're faking disease as kind of a more subtle way to escape service. But once they pass the sanitary inspections, then they're basically herded onto trains. I've seen Egyptian observers make the comparison to cattle taken by train to cities like Cairo and Alexandria, where they would be. House for a couple weeks. They would be given their uniforms. They would undergo sanitation regimen where they would be showered and they would get their all their body hair would be shaved off. They would be given de lousing and other kinds of like soaps and other you know uh, sanitation ideas. Right, making sure that they aren't I guess bringing anything from the countryside to the ELC. And, and they, as they're going through the sanitation regime, they're also given uniforms and then they're kind of split up into companies and companies are split up into gangs and they're organized along basically like military lines, right? They're drilled. They have to line up for inspection every morning and every night and their officer walks across them as they're in formation and checks their uniform and makes sure that they're looking how they want them to look. And then eventually these guys have to continue along. For those that are going to, to France or to Gallipoli or to Iraq, they have to travel by steamship. And for those who are going up to Palestine, which is where the majority of the ELC ended up serving, they travel by railroad. Once the railroad is constructed by 1917, they're all traveling by railroad to get up to Palestine. So it's a long journey, and they are being um, transformed, in a sense, from, uh, from villagers into military laborers along this journey. And by the time that they get to the final destination, that's when they're really exposed to military discipline. For example, if somebody deserts or if somebody steals rations, they can be subjected to a field general court-martial and they were, you know, forced to work. They were, they were oftentimes flogged by British officers if they did not work in, a, in the fashion that the officers wanted them to. In some cases, Egyptians who protested while they were working abroad were actually sentenced to execution by firing squad.
1: One an- Another source that I came across was a memoir by Aysmosif Adewla. He was a Marxist judge. In his memoirs, which he published in 1990 he decided to recount the memoirs of his village. And there was one person who was taken to the war Younis, he talks at some point about how how they were sort of learning how to uh, circumvent the french how to deal with the french how to resist at times um when they were being violent when the french military uh, officials were being violent with them how to make demands etc and their rais was a maghrebi by maghrebi it, it that could mean that he was a northwest african or it could it could mean that he was uh, from el maghreb But he told them that the only way to deal with the French is strike, to strike. And they they tried that out because one of them uh, died um, in the tent they were sleeping in because it was so cold at night. Uh, And they decided not to work until they made sure that their friend got a proper burial. There was generally this fear, you see it uh, in, in, this, in this account, but then it's one of the most common themes in the recordings of Indian prisoners of war, this fear of not knowing where you go after you die on the front, because you're already somehow lost in the world. And I think there was this fear that after you die, you're, you're further lost by not being cremated in the case of the Indian prisoners of war or not being buried properly in the case of the Egyptian prisoners of war so you don't find your way back la, physically well as spiritually in this in this instance they they decided that they were going to strike that they were not going to work this led to a confront a confrontation with the french general who they called ginanor so they were forced to stand stand outside uh, outside their tent and they were sort of they were sort of surrounded by members of the french military uh, and they were told that they had to keep standing in the rain and they can't, they can't sit down. I think they were told to, that they're waiting, that they need to wait and that the general is going to do something and come back. And then they realized that they were just being made to wait for no reason, for hours in the rain. And then one of them said, uh, So if basically, if you're... if." If you're a man, then sit down. And they all decided to sit down at once. And this is when they were all shot. The, he ordered the, the military to shoot to shoot um, Eunice's whole uh, labor corps group. But it was more like a situation where the, where the general told them, you know, you're not allowed to move. And then used the fact that they sat down as, you know, they were told not to move and they moved and they were all shot. And they all fell dead, except for Eunice. He, w- he fell, but he wasn't dead. And when al-Rayis al-Maghribi was told to collect their bodies, he found that Eunice was alive. Um, and he told him to play dead, to pretend he was dead, uh, until he was taken to the hospital. And there, to show them he was conscious. And they wouldn't be able to do anything to him in the hospital because of the laws governing uh, wars and prisoners of war at the time. And at that point, he would be sent back home, which is what happened. There are records of it in the Foreign Office archives. It wasn't the only massacre.
0: Just thinking about the, one of the arguments that Kyle makes in his book, I mean, in terms of race, these are essentially British soldiers who are taken from Egypt, right? But they are British. They are under the British flag. And Great Britain finds out that France massacres an entire group of workers from the British military, even though they're Egyptian. In terms of Britain's sovereignty, France just killed their. Their soldiers yeah It would be fascinating to know how they reacted if it's as i understand it it kind of says something about the colonial logic that great britain would find them expendable enough that would be a major international incident you know if the french had massacred a bunch of workers from manchester or or you know probably even from australia yeah right yeah i mean it seems like a big story
1: yeah but they were expendable i mean i think there's an article on photography and World War I workers, and the writer, he talks about one of the ways that Egyptian um, labor corps were used were uh, that, they would, that they would be put in boats and put out in, I think this was in Palestine, that they would put, be put in boats and put out in the sea at night as decoys. And um, if, if, the, if the Ottoman army was coming and shot at them, then, then the military that was on, on shore would know that the, that the Ottomans are coming. for so they were literally put out as decoys, for they, they were quite um, dispensable.
2: There's a lot of kind of specifically racialized abuse that the Egyptian labor corps is exposed to during their service. While the British army had outlawed flogging of white troops in the 19th century, the British officials continued using flogging for Egyptian laborers during World War I. And this was something that uh, some conscientious objectors pointed out in the sources that I read as kind of being one of the big things that made the British look like hypocrites, right? Because the British are, are engaged in this global crusade against slavery. And then at the same time, they're basically treating Egyptian laborers like slaves by whipping them during their their work.
0: At the fronts, where Egyptians came into contact with soldiers and workers from all over the world, further experiences of racism and colonial difference shaped the impressions they brought back home.
2: In a lot of studies of colonial troops and workers who served in the First World War, it's acknowledged that British and French officials were basically racist in the way that they approached these people but the way that a lot of scholars kind of study that racism is by looking at attitudes prejudices representations i think the argument that i'm trying to make is that studying representations and attitudes and prejudices doesn't really account for how race ideas about race impact people who are being racialized right like the effect that those attitudes and prejudices have on the construction of space. So I focus on segregation and abuse, you know, violence, ideas about race that work themselves out on the space of the body. I also then subsume under that the ways that Egyptians were denied footwear in some cases, or the ways that their diets were regimented and controlled by ideas about what, quote unquote, Arabs eat. And I think that it's really by living in these spaces that the british constructed on the basis of race that egyptian laborers ended up coming to internalize and reappropriate and adopt for themselves a general sense of themselves as being egyptians and as being different than their white officers and as being similar to one another who had to live together in these situations There were a lot of migrant laborers in France, right, during World War One, including a lot of white laborers from Spain and and Belgium and other parts of Europe. And those white migrant laborers were not segregated. They were not set apart from the French population. But the so-called colored laborers, which included Egyptians and also Chinese, Indians, Africans, Vietnamese, whatever, they were all segregated and set apart from the local population. And then in Palestine, the the Egyptians Partially because they're working more on the front lines and they're building logistical infrastructures ahead of the troops as they advance. That's one of the reasons why they're interacting more with the populations. Whereas in France, they're behind the front lines and they're relatively stable. But in Palestine, they move as the lines advance. And that, I think, makes it harder to segregate the laborers. But the other thing that contributes to this lack of segregation in Palestine, I think, is. Ideas about race, ideas about the race of Egyptians being similar to the the racial essence of the local populations in Palestine. And so to me, it's then perhaps not coincidental that Egyptians are more prone to protest when they're working abroad in France or Italy or Gallipoli than they are in Palestine.
0: The First World War was the deadliest conflict in recorded memory. Some 10 million military personnel died in combat or perished from wounds and diseases. The war resulted in mass displacement. Many Egyptian workers never made it back home.
1: I think it's really important for us to realize how horrific wars are. I tried to work with the with the British Commonwealth Graves Commission, or the Commission for Commonwealth Graves, I didn't have the stomach to do it for too long between you and me. They have a big problem uh, with, with a lack of number of, um, of the Egyptian labor corps, that so they don't have proper numbers. And in, finding, in just finding the numbers of people who were killed in these wars, you're again... Reinstating the might of the army, because you know, the army was this many people strong, uh, and you're honoring, which should happen, of course, people who died, but people who died serving, not people who were lost by this senseless (coughs) war or these series of battles that were, that they had to fight, whether or not they liked it. That there, there is something about just, just insisting on gathering numbers that validates the wars you know that validates and re-justifies the wars in a way as opposed to i feel trying to find the stories that have people's voices that have things like this this like this power this fear um this terror of dying and not being buried the way you're supposed to so there's an archive in Berlin. It's in, um, it's in the Humboldt Forum at the moment, but it's under Humboldt University and it's called the Laut Archiv, which is the sound archive or the voice archive. This sound archive is basically an archive of prisoners of vo- recordings with prisoners of World War I in Germany. And this includes the colonial soldiers. There, there's a significant number of recordings with North North African prisoners of war. And the purpose of these recordings was to sort of further colonial interests uh, as well as for linguistic reasons. It really is an experiment. I, I mean they don't shy away from what the purpose is, but there is a clear purpose. It's and there's an analysis in these there are these personal forms that go with the songs, and there's an analysis of the kind of voice, you know, like dark and deep or weak and um light.
0: The recordings of the Lautarchiv are vast and varied. They include the voice of a 37-year-old Tunisian POW from the French army who was recorded in a number of sessions, recounting stories, riddles, and these war songs, which became part of a German study on Arabic and Berber dialects in North Africa.
1: So what they would do is they would ask the prisoners to stand in front of a gramophone and sing a song or tell a folk story without disclosing any information any information about themselves, about about the prisoner of war camp that they were in. And you know in some of the photographs you see them there you you have Willem Dogen and, and the other linguists with their hands on their heads. Pushing their pushing their faces deeper into the funnel, so that they so that they spoke or sang or told a story into it. William Dogan and others write in their notes how some of them have funnel fever because they they start to panic as they're speaking into the funnel. I mean, they could have been claustrophobic, but one thing they 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 make fun of is how the soldiers feel like their voice is being stolen by this device. This recording uh, technology was, you know, it's still, still very new. And so this idea of having your voice recorded and played back at you was something very scary for them. But Britta describes how in these situations, many workers, uh, and soldiers used this moment as an opportunity to tell their story. Like Sadiq bin Rashid, he he talks about where where he was taken and how, but uh, he makes it sound like um, like a love poem. In the Indian recordings that Britta works with, um, some of them tell you know very elaborate ghost stories, and she feels like it was a way to warn um, these linguists that they're going to be haunted. And so they sing these songs, but their stories, I mean, their stories about where they were captured, their stories about where they are, their stories about what they fear. This was a moment where they could, that where their voices could be captured. They didn't know who would hear it. And here you are listening to it 100 years later, and they're trying to give clues about who they are, or where they are, or how they got there.
0: As you noted, a song can be old, but each iteration of it is like alive. It's like the storytellers of old who had these old stories as frames, but then would change the story to reflect the situation.
1: And the audience. And the-
0: Yeah, so they were like capturing something that in many ways was probably like of the moment, right? Even though they were soliciting quote unquote folk songs.
1: Yeah. It's also about how songs are a very intimate language. It's like a coded language like one of the songs that i'm working with now comes from morocco and it's it's very much like Aini. it's a tadida. it's the kind of song you sing when someone dies like a lament it's a lament and the man sings his own name into it uh, you know like this person is lost this person is gone
0: Brita longa uses a, a metaphor
1: yes she calls them messages in bottles messages in bottles that are sort of thrown out and and you just don't know who's going to find them and if they're going to understand you but it's your one chance to throw yourself out there and wait.
0: While prisoners of war left behind songs as messages in bottles, Egyptian workers who returned home also brought with them songs that would become anthems of a revolution. After the war, at the League of Nations, the future of territories belonging to the defeated Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires was up for debate. Nominally, Egypt was still, in some sense, part of the Ottoman Empire. But Britain was the de facto imperial power. In Egypt, an independence movement coalesced around the wartime experience.
2: There was widespread unrest throughout Egypt early as 1918 in response to Egyptian labor corps recruitment. A movement
1: starts, like more retaliation starts by Egyptian peasants who are being taken as workers to the war. They start to resist being taken. They start to set the police stations where they're being kept alight. And they start all forms, different forms of resistance to being taken to the war, but also to revolting, not just against the British, but also the landowners and the sort of feudal elites that that were cooperating with the British.
2: After the war was over in November of 1918, recruitment continued, and so protests picked back up around that time. But uh, simultaneous to this, in November of 1918, a group of Egyptian nationalists, politicians, and intellectuals begins to organize a delegation to the Paris Peace Conference, which is known as the WEFT. In order to build support for the WEFT, These nationalists begin touring throughout the Egyptian countryside, gathering signatures to authorize their delegation to represent the Egyptian nation at the Paris Peace Conference. And this process puts them into confrontation with the British uh, authorities in Egypt. And eventually, in March of 1919, the British authorities arrest Saad Zaghloul, who is the leader of this effort, the leader of the Weft, and four of his colleagues. And he's, they send them to Malta, uh, to prison in Malta. And this sparks a series of protests that are activated by the WAFT's networks. You can think about their arrest and exile of Saad Zaglul as like the straw that broke the camel's back or like the spark that lit the powder keg that had already been prepared by World War I and all of the other difficult exploitative aspects of the British occupation these protests begin spreading uh, across the countryside. And one of the big things that they do is they sabotage railways, telephones, and telegraph lines. And I think that this is in some ways related to the Egyptian labor corps, because as I mentioned before, it was really the railroads that were how these Egyptian laborers were transported out of the countryside. And also the railroads were how um, cattle and foodstuffs were being also exported out of the countryside to Fuel the British war machine as it was fighting in World War One, and so I think the the particular form that these protests took in attacking the railway infrastructures, I think that's related to World War One and the the way that those uh, that policies like the ELC were these extractive policies were happening during the war.
1: What's so significant about the strikes is that like Yunus says and like I Seifad Dawla says that these were these were peasants. They didn't work in factories. They didn't but these resistant techniques also they were relatively new to them. When they were being taken to the war, they they, they described that the that the way a peasant usually deals with something like a flood. Uh, the way we deal with power is that we circumvent it. So there are the techniques that that Kyle talks about in the beginning. In this case, the war is a situation where they learn be confrontational. I'm not saying that that never happened before. But these confrontational techniques, which which are more present in, in the context of labor revolts, I feel they learned partially uh, from associating with other North Africans what forms of solidarities were happening on the front, what synchronized revolts, you know, without communication, sort of the way there's always this question of how um, the police stations were, were, were simultaneously burnt all over um, Egypt on the 28th of January. You know, How could it have happened without coordination? I'm wondering if this was a moment, a revolutionary moment somehow, where people came back from the war and were revolting, not just against colonial powers, but against the sort of feudal landed elite that were cooperating with the colonial powers to take them to war.
2: There's a struggle that's going on during March and April between nationalists and other elements within these protests. And the nationalists are ultimately, I think, able to establish hegemony in many cases. But this struggle itself is evidence of the fact that there was a plurality of different interests at play in each one of these protests. And The waft needed to struggle in order to establish hegemony, right? So that means that there were other sort of non-waftist elements within these protests. And I think the clearest place where we see that happening is in the cities or the provinces of Asyut and Minya, which are in Upper Egypt, to the south of Egypt. And ultimately, the British are also trying to get a handle on the situation. And so they deploy their army, right? The Egyptian Expeditionary Force, the same force that just conquered Syria and Palestine from the Ottomans then gets unleashed in rural Egypt. And it's made up of British Indian troops and Australian and New Zealander forces. And they go around basically crushing these rural demonstrations and killing thousands of Egyptians along the way. And they even use the Royal Air Force to bomb and machine gun crowds who are engaged in protest at this time. And at the same time, the British then free Saad Zaghloul from prison in Malta, and they start this process of negotiation with the WAF to allow the WAF to travel to Paris and ultimately to grant a kind of conditional and very limited form of sovereignty to Egypt by 1922. And so it's kind of interesting to me that the British crush the rural rebellions, and then they negotiate with the WAF. It's almost like the British themselves are distinguishing between these two aspects of protest and so i think this is kind of further evidence that there are a plurality of diverse interests animating protest action during the 1919 revolution and it's only over time that the left emerges as the guiding force and the uh main force animating the protest movements
0: though it would be decades before the end of all british colonial influence in egypt In 1922, Egypt was recognized as a sovereign nation-state. The songs of the war period, some of which were adaptations of older songs, became part of the emerging national musical canon.
2: The song that gets talked about the most by scholars of the Egyptian labor corps is a song by the name of Ya'Aziz Aini. And this is a song that was a popular folk song sung by migrant laborers who served in Egyptian irrigation uh, labor throughout the 19th century. And then it was recorded by the Egyptian diva Naima al-Masreya in 1915. A lot of these Egyptian laborers are the observers write down that they're quite fond of singing this song. And the way that the, that the laborers sang, it wasn't like a set song. There was a lot of improvisation. The, the song was more of a framework which allowed for creative wordplay. And so, one of the interesting things about Yaziz Aini is that it shows up later on after the war in uh, protests that are happening against the British presence in Egypt, right? Because after the war, the 1919 revolution breaks out. And one of the things the British report right before the 1919 revolution is this version of Yaziz Aini that was circulating around in Alexandria and Cairo, which criticized the British heavily for taking. Egyptian labor corps laborers away from their families. So the version by Naima El-Masriya, which is just a general song about longing for your homeland, ends up becoming transformed into this kind of nationalist, anti-British anthem. A version of the song may have traveled back with an Egyptian laborer who served abroad, and that this version then kind of took root inside of Egypt itself and spread anti-British themes and a critique of British policy uh, towards the Egyptian labor corps in particular uh, within this song.
1: We, we have no idea how many workers uh, went, were taken to war from Egypt, and, and we may never know. But it's equally important to know what that experience at war was like, and that's what the songs give us. They give you a sense of what it was like to be at war. For instance, in the, in the, like, the different versions I, f- I found of Ya there's this one version, there's the version where they're being taken um, on the train, and this one is a, a sad uh, a version, a, a version about being taken away. And there's a version that was overheard in the 30s, and this one has this uh, phrase, يَلِّي رَمَاكِ So, Hawa Hawa is desire. Um so you've been caught by desire turns or swear to the combo, you know, the British depots, they'll take off all your rags and give you and give you proper clothes. For so there was this desire to go to war, and this is something that falls out of our archives that, that people were curious about traveling. I mean, understanding the sort of desire that goes to war, the shock of being on the front, and you know, and the gruesome experience, the anger when you come back, the campaign to stop people from going to war, the movement that started by al Falahin. all of this has totally fallen out of our modern history and has only come up recently. working on Naima's Naima al song which is a recorded song that was recorded on an LP between 19, on a record between 1914 and 1918 I was sort of trying to transcribe the lyrics to find out the lyrics in order to figure out when was the first time this song was sung you know when was it really at the beginning of the war or was it in the second year or third year because I was trying to put all these different versions I found in order and when I finally had the song all transcribed I I googled the first uh um, verse of the second stanza and then it turned out to be an a whole other song that that whole stanza was was a was 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 like a mawel that that and I found versions of it recording but recorded by people's phones in mawelid for instance and the same happened for the third stanza and fourth stanza so I I'd been working so hard to transcribe the song because it was going to be the source of sources this was the first time yazi Aini was sung and when I finally got it it exploded into shards of songs that are as old as the experience of conscription itself or displacement, or estrangement. Um, and she, or say de Ruish, had somehow brought all these folk songs that they may have been hearing in Osu together to sing that moment.
0: The most famous song to come out of the war period was a song called Salma Ya Salama, recorded by the Egyptian composer Sayyid Darwish. Many decades later, it would become an international sensation in the form of an adaptation by the Italian-French singer Dalida, who was born in Egypt. That chart-topping pop cover recorded in multiple languages lacked political content, but it had its origins in a song about the Egyptian workers who had returned home after the war.
2: Sayyid Darwish is kind of one of the most famous figures of of Egyptian modern music. And Salma Yassalama, written about Egyptian labor corps workers, is one of his most famous songs. So, uh, That's not a song that laborers themselves sang, but it's a song written about the laborers that became quite popular, uh, again, around this time, 1918, 1919. And it also portrayed kind of nationalist themes, right, talking about how great Egypt is and how much the laborers couldn't wait to get back home, and those kinds of uh, ideas. And it kind of cuts against one of the dominant interpretations of the Egyptian labor corps that was circulating around Egypt at the time, which really played up the forced and coercive aspects. It empowers, I think, the laborers themselves. It makes them seem like they have more agency. It adds a little bit of a nuance and complexity to the way that we think about the ELC. But ultimately, it is it is still kind of nationalist, so long as we keep in mind that nationalism was plural and contained a lot of different substrands within it at this time. So here's the English translation of Salma Yasalama. Safe and sound, oh safe and sound, sound your horn steamer and drop anchor, I'll disembark right here. Never mind America or Europe, nothing is better than my country. The ship bringing us home is so much sweeter than the one that took us away. Captain, I say, safe and sound, oh, safe and sound. At least we have something to show for it all. We saved up our pay and are coming home. We've seen the guns and we've seen war and we've seen dynamite with our eyes. There's only one Lord and we only live once. We met, we went and we made it back and we're no worse off.
1: But the thing about these songs is that they don't start and end in any particular place. They were definitely sung in this war, probably in other wars as well. They're folk songs. They're as old as the experience that they relate. Fayazi Zaini is as old as the experience of estrangement and separation, for instance. It's the same with Salma Ya The oldest version I came across was one that was sung by uh, prostitutes in the late 19th early 20th century as uh, when they used to be taken to the health offices to to be checked they would be taken in groups and on their way back they would sing salma yasalama, ruhna salama, in order to announce in the neighborhood they were in that they were that they were disease free that they were healthy
0: that's fascinating it got my mind turning a little bit because these workers are probably being tested for syphilis too so like sex workers announcing that they had just passed their <laughs> syphilis examination. Like, yes, these sentiments can move between contexts, but actually what that story tells for me is that there was something shared between the experience of an Egyptian labor corps worker and a sex worker in colonial Egypt.
1: Yeah, and the workers were, were subjected to a lot of measures also of sanitization. There's a particular way of dealing with them as bodies, or the way they were used as decoys there was they were always they were always just bodies and it's the same in um it's the same in the, in the Laut archive also there's one uh, folk story by this um Moroccan worker called Alen um who came from a village called Benjirir and he uh, tells the story of a w- wolf and a donkey would you like to hear it sure it's a story of a wolf and a donkey and basically they're a group of workers and they have a donkey and the group of workers are very hungry. They ask the donkey if he could help them get food. So the donkey goes and he gets food for the workers and on his way back, this wolf appears and the wolf is an old wolf and the wolf is um, talks to the donkey about how it's very old and needs help and can the donkey help him. And the donkey says, of course, why don't you, he says he's too tired to walk basically. So the donkey says, of course, why don't you ride on my back and I'll take you home. So the wolf gets on the donkey's back and as it's there, it nibbles on all the food that the donkey's carrying until the wolf gets home and it hides the rest of the food on it somehow and it thanks the donkey and the donkey goes off on its way back to the workers and once it get there, gets there, the workers go, oh my god, there's the, you, you don't have any food with you and the donkey realizes what happens. The donkey decides that he's going to go back for revenge. The donkey goes back to the wolf and he knocks on its door and the wolf's wife is busy cooking the food and the wolf comes outside and as soon as the wolf opens the door, the donkey plays dead. On the ground. So the wolf goes, Ha, I have more food. And he thinks of how he can pull in the donkey to put it in the stew that the wolf's wife is making. And so he ties a rope to his stomach and ties it to the donkey and starts to pull the donkey. At this point, the donkey gets up and runs with the wolf and drags him to where the workers are. And they skin the workers and the donkey skin the wolf together. They don't say whether or not they eat it. But when I was listening to this, the first thing that I thought of was Khalifa al-Maghribi telling Yunus to play dead. And this, you know, tactic of pretending to be at your weakest in order to outsmart the wolf. When I um, uh, played the, sto- this, the story to my friends, uh, Sumaya Ait Ahmed and Nader Buhmush, who are part of this initiative documenting Tamazir stories and poems and songs, they said that this story is usually told with a donkey and a goat as opposed to a donkey and, a, and workers. And I felt like in some way, this story is about extraction or extractionist manipulative policies. You know, this wolf on the donkey's back eating its food, is sort of just like the German linguists extracting language out of these workers and the skinning is just this promise of revenge you could of course argue that we're reading too much into the story and it's just a folk story about a donkey and a wolf and that they wrote themselves into the story somehow by having workers there instead of a goat
0: i think that's a reasonable interpretation (laughs) (laughs) if they inserted themselves into the story and what they meant by it is a you know is open to interpretation right why not yeah There's an iconic image from the 1919 Egyptian revolution, featuring women at a demonstration. It's everywhere online, often without much sourcing and captioning. It includes the famous Egyptian feminist Hoda Sharawi and other women giving a patriotic speech in the context of the independence movement. I've seen this image so many times, but what I see now after working on this episode that I didn't really see before is the sound it contains. Though it's only a still image, through the dynamism and movement it conveys, We can almost hear the voice of a woman standing defiantly, armed raised, addressing a crowd, and shouting through the thin veil that covers her mouth. The photograph captured an important moment when the voices of women, much like the voices of ordinary laborers who served during the war, filled the streets of Egyptian cities demanding political change. Those voices of the World War I period have echoed throughout Egyptian history ever since. In our next installment of this special series on the sound of revolution in modern Egypt, we'll delve into another layer of that history, exploring the street sounds of Egyptian cities like Alexandria and Cairo during the interwar period. We'll learn how a battle over Egypt's soundscape was part of a larger class struggle over urban space, and in the process, we'll uncover how a new sonic medium, Radio came to play a central role in Egyptian public life. Join us.